G'day again, everyone. We're continuing our series tonight in Respectable Sins and uh, Neglected Virtues. Few people have been asking me how we chose the five particular respectable sins that we're focused on and the five particular neglected virtues. Uh, some people have said, you know, are these the sins you see here amongst us at St George North. You know, did you just want the opportunity to to hammer us on these five particular things because you thought there are particular struggles? Maybe I did. I don't know. No. The truth is, I chose these five areas because they're the areas I struggle with. That's why I chose these five areas. These are the sins that I think I tolerate in my life more than others. Uh, And these are the virtues that I perhaps recognise I neglect to cultivate. Uh, And so if they are the sins of our church, or if you're feeling like I'm aiming them particularly at you, rest assured, uh, I'm aiming them at me first. But you might notice something, you might notice, besides the introduction to the series, which I did, and I just want to keep reiterating, that's the most important talk in this series, because it it covers every area of sin and godliness. It's the whole theory behind it, if you like. So if you haven't heard the first talk of the series, go and get the podcast. But besides that, you might notice I allocated myself the sins of greed and judgmentalism. So I've chosen these two for myself. That was intentional. That's sort of senior minister's privilege. Uh, You remember I said when I spoke on greed, I said, that is our sin. So I put it number one, because the world we live in is just driven by greed and we just soak it up. It's just part of the air we breathe. And so, so it is the sin of our generation of Christians. So I gave greed the number one spot. Uh, But I think judgmentalism, or what I'm calling the sin of a critical spirit, comes a close second. Because in my experience, every Christian, basically since the Apostle Peter, and the Apostle Peter was the first person to say to Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. He's the first Christian. Every Christian since him has struggled with this. At least every Christian who takes sin seriously and who takes godliness seriously and who takes sound doctrine seriously struggles with being judgmental at some point. In fact, in my experience, the only people who don't struggle with being judgmental are people who have another problem. They don't care enough about the sin in their life. They don't care enough about godliness. They don't care enough about sound doctrine. And the reality is that, that if you care about those things as a Christian should, then you will struggle at times with being judgmental. But just because it's common doesn't make it okay. And if you think about it, Jesus spoke against this so clearly. I said a few weeks ago that Jesus spoke about money more than any other topic, but he also spoke a lot about being judgmental. And the reality is when people who claim the name of Jesus, when people who say, I am a Christian, are judgmental, it dishonours the name of Christ and it dishonours the gospel. So we need to deal with it. It's interesting, though, how our world loves this part of Jesus' teaching. You see, that line we read before from Matthew 7, that's going to be our main passage tonight, so have Matthew 7 open. That line we read before from Matthew 7, don't judge or you will be judged. It's interesting how it's actually one of the most famous things Jesus said. And people who know very little about Jesus will quote that verse at you if you're a Christian especially if you dare to talk about morality in any way, shape or form. They say, oh, but Jesus said, don't judge or you'll be judged. Well, actually they say, judge not lest ye be judged, because that's what the person last read the Bible when it was the King James Version. But, but it's just so often quoted, judge not lest ye be judged. I was listening to an old REM song this week. Uh, since my kids put Spotify on my phone, I've been reliving my youth. So uh, Jasper turned to me before and said, who's REM? And I, 
I just cringed. I, I just died inside. But anyway, I was listening to an old REM song during the week. I was going to play the song for us at church. For those with uh, memories back to just before COVID, I remember the last time I played a song in church, it was the Kanye West song, Closed on Sunday. And the following week, everything was shut down for COVID. So Sophie said to me, you are not allowed to play a song in church. She said, she said it's too much of a prophecy. So anyway... Uh, in the song New Test Leper, the singer Michael Stipe, he says, he's first of all, I can't say that I love Jesus. So he's saying, I'm not a Christian. But then he says this, he says, but he, Jesus, did make some observations, and I'm quoting them today. Judge not, lest ye be judged. What a beautiful refrain. And it's so true, isn't it? There's something about this, this call of Jesus to not judge one another that is just incredibly attractive to our world. It, it's, it is a beautiful refrain. Uh, and I think it's so attractive because every human being hates being judged. Everyone. We all hate it. We, we hate it when someone stands in judgment over us. But then at the same time, every human being is really quick to judge. I think this is almost universal, that we, we hate other people judging us, while with the same breath, we judge other people. We're just so much better, to use Jesus' words, at seeing the speck in other people's eyes than we are at seeing the log in our own eye. The reason I chose that Old Testament reading before, uh, from back in 2 Samuel, is because I think that story of King David actually captures this part of the human heart better than just about any other story in the Bible. Uh, I think it's one of the saddest but realist moments in the whole Bible. So if, if you know the story, we read a part of it before, but the background to it is that King David has sent his armies off to war while he sits back in his palace. So there's the first problem. He's a king who doesn't lead his armies. He sends them off to fight his battles. But it gets worse because he's there in his palace and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing. And just because he can, he takes her for himself, even though he knows she's married to one of his most loyal soldiers. So here's David, the adulterer. But it gets worse. She's pregnant. He's besotted with her. So he arranges to have her husband put in the front row of the battle so that he'll be killed. Now, in, in his mind, like all Pharisees, like so many of us, David says, well, it's not murder. I'm not killing him. The, the enemy's swords are killing him. But David is guilty of sending this man to his death. His loyal subject, he's not only committed adultery with his wife, he's now engineered his death. And so the prophet Nathan, who I think must be just about one of the bravest men in all of history, goes into the king and he tells him a story. And he says, David, there was this really, really rich man who had all the flocks in the world, had thousands of sheep. And there's this other man, he's a little poor farmer and he had only one little lamb. But when a visitor pops in to see the rich man, instead of killing one of his thousands of lambs, and he wouldn't have missed it, he goes and takes the poor man's lamb, his only one, and kills it and cooks it instead. And Nathan doesn't even finish the story before David just sort of bursts out in sort of righteous indignation. We read it before, it said it burned with anger. And he yells, as surely as the Lord lives, that man must die. For what he did. And then just this incredible moment, David just quietly says to David, you are that man. I'm talking about you. And I think, as I say, there's one of those powerful moments in the Bible because somehow it shows us how just somehow David was unable to see the forest of wood 
in his own eye, even while he could point out the sin in this hypothetical man in a story. And I think the reason it's so powerful is because if we're honest, we see ourselves in David. See, we might not be guilty of adultery or murder, although we should remember what Jesus says about hating being like murder and uh, lusting being like adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. But we might not be guilty of actually murdering someone or, or committing adultery. But don't we all see something of ourselves in David in the way we're incredibly good at spotting what other people do wrong, while at the same time amazingly blind to our own failings? We're incredibly good at condemning other people while at the same time very good at excusing ourselves. And so Jesus says, go to our New Testament reading, which I'm going to focus on, Matthew 7, verse 1. Jesus says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Just says it so simply, so clearly, don't judge. There's our sermon. Don't judge. Let's pray. No, that was a joke. Because you see, the problem is anyone who knows their Bible... I pray that's lots of us here, knows it's not as simple as that because it's not as simple as just not judging because at other places, Jesus tells us we do have to judge. And at other parts of the New Testament, we're told in some ways we do have to judge one another at points. See, the rest of the New Testament is very clear. There is a time to judge. So when do we judge and when do we not judge? What is the sort of judging that Jesus is condemning in, in Matthew chapter 7? So to understand what Jesus is warning against here, I'm actually going to start with when it's right to judge. So our next heading will come up. And this is when the Christian is called to judge. See, part of the difficulty is that sin and godliness and sound doctrine really matter. When we sin, it's a, it's a problem. When, when we, we don't grow in godliness, it's a problem. When we believe the wrong things, it is a problem. Paul says to Timothy, like a, a pastor he's training, 1 Timothy 4, he says, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, he's saying, Timothy, these things really matter. How you live matters. What you believe matters. If you get it wrong, your salvation could be at stake. Worse than that, you could lead other people and put their salvation at stake. How you live, what you believe impacts people's salvation. So you need to judge yourself, first of all. A Christian shouldn't just say, I can live however I want. That's, why have we had this series otherwise? No, see, we need to judge ourselves. We need to be not satisfied with ungodliness in our life, not satisfied when what we believe doesn't fit with what the Scriptures say. But then in love, we need to be concerned for one another. It matters when people are sinning and not repenting of it. It matters when people's doctrine is going wrong. So even in our Matthew 7 passage, Jesus actually does say to help people remove their specks. And then down at verse 6, Jesus says, we're to treat some people as pigs and dogs. If that's not a negative judgment, I don't know what is. See, all through the Bible, there is just this assumption that if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you love your church family, like we were reminded of at Invest, you will sometimes have to show that by challenging them. And you'll sometimes have to show that by even rebuking them about the sin in their lives. You will have to judge at some point. So in Matthew 18, verse 15, it'll come for the screen. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So the point is, if you love him enough, you'll care that he's sinning and you'll, you'll gently and quietly go and challenge him about it. 
But if you can read the rest of Matthew 18 at home later on, but Jesus then sets out a whole process of how you respond if your brother and sister doesn't repent. And the process ultimately ends up in treating them like an unbeliever, what we call church discipline, asking them to leave the church, effectively judging them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, another chapter you can read later, the Apostle Paul shows us actually a worked example of how Matthew 18 works out and he, where he actually gets to the point of kicking people out of the church because they refuse to repent of their sexual immorality. But it's sort of like even as he's teaching about it, that he knows that Christians like us are going to struggle with what he says. We're going to think, but didn't Jesus say don't judge? And so he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. He says, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? His point is, you're absolutely right. Don't judge people outside the church. But then he says, but don't you judge those who are inside? His point is, of course you don't judge people outside the church. What use is it telling a person who doesn't know Jesus to stop getting drunk? What use is it telling a person who who doesn't know Jesus to stop swearing or or stop sleeping around or or whatever it is? That's sort of like trying to cure their cancer by putting a Band-Aid on one little sore on their arm. No, what they need is salvation. They need to hear the gospel. They need forgiveness. They need, they need the new heart that only comes through trusting in Jesus. Only then will they change how they live. So don't judge people outside the church. Preach the gospel to them. That's our job for people who are not yet believers. But for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for people who claim to know Jesus, godliness matters. There is a place for judgment. But wow, that judgment can go wrong when it's one sinner judging another. And so there's one final passage that really helps us understand this. It's Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Look with me. It says, Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. See, yes, there is a place to judge. Sometimes we need to love one another enough to rebuke each other, to challenge each other. But you notice here the goal is not to condemn them. The goal is not so you can say, look at me, I'm better than you. The the goal, what is it there? It's to restore them. It's to help them. It's to bring them back to Jesus. The goal is to offer them forgiveness, to offer them reconciliation. It's to be done for their good. And if you look at the manner in that passage, the manner is not to be harsh. It's not to be condemning, not to be judgmental, if you like. It's with a spirit of gentleness a spirit of grace. And even as you do it, saying, there but for the grace of God go I. I think that's that point about watching out for yourself so you also won't be tempted. It's sort of recognising you're just as in danger of sinning as this person is. Don't, don't stand in judgment. Even as you seek to correct, it's with gentleness, it's with grace, it's with humility. I must admit, I can't help that passage, Galatians 6 verse 1. I can't help but compare that to our current secular world. With, especially with you know, so-called cancel culture and, and that sort of thing, where our world prides itself on calling sin good and good things sinful. That's how our world has gone. It's just sort of inverted everything. And it prides itself on tolerating everything. Tolerance is the greatest virtue. But wow, if you cross one of the sins of the modern world, there is no grace. There is no gentleness. There is no forgiveness. There is no hope of restoration. You are cancelled. You're, you're written off. See, our world claims we don't judge anyone, but gee, it's judgmental. 
That is not how it should be in the people of God. Yes, we should care enough about one another that sin grieves us. But our goal is never to condemn. Our goal is never to cancel. Our goal is never to stand in judgment. Our goal is to help and restore and bring people to find forgiveness and reconciliation. That's how we're to judge one another. But now let's think about that line. Go back to Matthew 7. That line, don't judge or you too will be judged. Given what we've just seen, what is Jesus warning against here? What's he driving at here? He's clearly not forbidding wise discernment and judgment in that sense, but he is forbidding, I think, that critical judgmental attitude we can all too often have. He's forbidding that that critical spirit. He's he's forbidding that quickness to condemn, that, that quickness to write off without even knowing all the facts, that quickness to assume the worst rather than show grace. And I think we all know that temptation to be judgmental, don't we? It can manifest itself in really many different ways. There's the supercritical spirit. This might be you, I don't know. The supercritical spirit, where no one is up to your standards, where whatever you see, you see the problem. Whatever you see, you see what's wrong. I'm the only one who's always right, and unless you meet my high standards, I, I write you off. Ben shared a story. Ben, he's been here. Where's Ben? There he is. Ben shared a story this morning about a, a man that, uh, that felt he had the gift of criticism, that his job was to spot the errors and point. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing. That's this, the supercritical spirit. It shows itself in the way we make assumptions about people and write them off without even asking questions, without even trying to understand their circumstances, without allowing for the fact that we mightn't know everything. Or at times, we're really just like King David. Our sin is obvious to everyone, except ourselves. But because we've got one particular thing under control, we judge people who don't have that particular thing under control, even though they might be much more godly than us in every way. Even the godliest Christian knows this temptation. Just about, you know, I work hard at taming my tongue. I give up hours of my week in Christian service. I don't just lead kids' church on a Sunday morning. I'm also in a gospel. I I do all this stuff for church. I've made godly decisions in my life. I've sacrificed things to take the godly path. I work at being generous with my money. Doesn't that give me the right, just a little bit, to look down my nose at the people who haven't made those decisions? Don't I have the right to just feel a little bit self-satisfied? in comparison. Surely I deserve at least that for my efforts. Is there anyone who doesn't know this temptation? So Jesus says, don't judge so that you won't be judged. This is so hard for us to get right, I think, and Christians have been struggling with it for 2,000 years, so we're not alone. So hard to get right being discerning without being judgmental. See, I see this in myself, just giving you an insight into me rather than examples for you. I see it in myself when I listen to Bible talks. Not here at St. George North, but uh, when I'm on a conference or something like that. Uh, I can listen in order to critique rather than to actually say, what is God's word saying to me through this talk? See, it's right to listen and test the message against the scriptures. I hope you're doing that tonight. I hope you, you have that sort of a critiquing spirit, if you like. But how quickly my godly critique crosses the line to judgmental criticism and comparison. And sometimes it doesn't cross that line, but I still have to ask, why do I have that spirit? 
What is, why, do I, why do I even think that way? So what is the key? It's about having the right attitude, isn't it? We should ask ourselves, why am I being so negative about this other person? Why do I feel the need to, to spot their faults, to, to point out the fault in the other? Why do I want to do that? What's my motive? motive? Am I doing it out of love for them? Or actually in here is it because I like to put myself above other people? And even if I do need to say a word to another person, do I do it privately? Do I do it graciously? Do I do it gently to help them grow? Is my real desire actually to tear them down and build myself up? If it's the latter, we are always better off leaving it to someone else to point out the fault. Even more important, we should ask ourselves, what attitude do we want God to have towards us? Because that's the attitude we should have to other people. And that's the point Jesus is making in verses 1 and 2. Look there again with me. Look at Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. And then he says, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged. That is incredibly sobering. With the measure you use towards other people, it will be measured to you. So just ask this question. What measure, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, what measure do you want God to use towards you? Do you want God to judge you fairly, but with mercy and forgiveness? Or do you want God to judge you with a condemning and judgmental spirit, as he is perfectly entitled to do, by the way? I, for one, pray for God's mercy. See, if we know the God who judges and condemns Christ in our place, that's the essence of the gospel, the God who refuses to condemn us even though we deserve it, if we know that God, then we should be very, very slow to ever think we have the right to judge or condemn another person. And so Jesus gives us the famous example. Look at verse 3. He says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus' point is really simple. A judging spirit tends to go hand in hand with hypocrisy. Those of us that are the quickest to judge other people's sins are actually often the least worthy to do so. Jesus is saying, worry more about your own godliness. Worry about your godliness before you worry about other people's. See, it's right to be concerned about other people. But don't be one of those people who's worried about everyone else except themselves. Which brings me to my next point, and I've called it judging the judgmental. Uh, there is an incredible irony I have found with this passage. It is amazing how often people, and I include myself, it's amazing how often we are quick to apply this passage to other people. Do you see the irony in that? It's an incredible irony. It happened to me this week as I'm preparing this sermon. I thought of friends... They might listen to the podcast. This is actually, anyway, it's done now. I've preached it twice this morning. Um, I thought of friends that are, and I thought, gee, I wish they came to St. George North because they need to hear this sermon. You see the irony in that? See, we read this and we say, isn't that true about Bob? Doesn't Bob need to, to oh, yeah. That, or we think, oh, yeah, that church was so judgmental of me when I, whatever it is. That minister needed to look at this passage closer, the way he dared to rebuke me. Do you see the irony? We even judge others for being judgmental. We are funny things, we sinful human beings. But more than that, it's actually an abuse of Jesus' words. 
So you must never use the plank in the eye of the other person as a justification for us not to deal with the things they've pointed out. Jesus says to them, don't be a hypocrite, but he says to you, don't continue in sin. So you remember the story of the people who were rushing to stone the adulterous woman? And then Jesus stepped in and he said another of the famous lines people love to quote, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all dropped their stones and walked away. And it's amazing how when people quote that story, they end it there. But there's a verse on the end of it, where after everyone else has gone, Jesus turns to the woman and says, go and sin no more. Do you see the point? See, they've dropped the stones. They were hypocrites. But you still need to deal with your sin. We must be one of those self-righteous fools who uses this passage as an excuse to continue in sin and just says, don't judge me. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is test your own heart, not wallow in unrepentant sin. Well, as I finish, ultimately, what's the underlying problem behind judgmentalism? I think the real problem is what I call a critical spirit. A spirit that is looking to compare ourselves to other people. A spirit that is always looking for the negative, that is always looking for the bad in others. A spirit that sort of assumes you know better. And many of us struggle with this sin, even though we never actually point anything out in other people's eyes. See, this, this sin doesn't just come out when we speak. I think much of our judging is done on the car ride home, in the quietness with one other person. Or even more than that, it actually just happens in here and in here. And we never say anything because actually we're too cowardly to do that. We just gossip or we just think negatively of another person. You see, the judgmental word is just a symptom of the critical spirit. So instead, I want us, God wants us more importantly, to be cultivating what I call a gracious spirit. The spirit that Ephesians 4 is talking about. Look with me, Ephesians 4.32, where it says, And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. See, that is what we want to be cultivating, a kindness, a compassion, a forgiving spirit. Then, in the same way, we want to be cultivating the wisdom that James talks about. Look at uh, James chapter 3, verse 17. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. How do we challenge our critical spirit? And how do we cultivate that sort? of a gracious spirit. Well, there are practical things we can do. We can hear the call of James chapter 1, verse 19. It'll come on the screen. Which says, My dearly beloved brothers, understand this, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, at first we just think of that about speech. We sort of think that's part of uh, Adriel's talk last week about how we, how we use our tongue. But there's so much behind that before you even get to talking. What's, what's the spirit that that's wanting to engender in us? It's a spirit that is slow to jump to conclusions, that doesn't just rush to share your judgments and share your thoughts, but instead actually works to understand people before we dare to speak. Understand people and see where they're coming from before we judge and before we jump to conclusions. So there are all sorts of practical things we can do, like applying James chapter 1. But at its heart, and the point we saw earlier, at its heart what we need to do is think about 
how do I want God to judge me and then I'll judge people the same way? That's at its heart what we need to do. What attitude do I want God to have towards me? If you ever notice how often Jesus says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Show mercy in the same way that God has shown mercy to you. There's a sobering line in Romans 14, verse 10. He was talking about them, how they were arguing about secondary matters. And, and he says this, he says, but you, why do you criticize your brother? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal of God. See what his point is? When I stand before God, how do I want him to judge me? Do I want the supercritical spirit like I'm showing others? Or do I want a gracious, merciful spirit? I go back to what Jesus said in our Matthew 7 reading. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What measure do we really want God to use as he judges us? See, as Christians, we know that we are awful sinners. We know that we are awful sinners, but we also know that rather than condemning us, God sent his son to die for us. Rather than giving us what we deserve, which is condemnation, God showed us grace and mercy. And so if we know that, as I pray we do, how can we then stand in judgment over other people? Let's work at putting off judgmentalism. Let's work at repenting of that critical spirit. And let's work instead at putting on a spirit of grace and a spirit of mercy, the sort of grace and mercy that we have received in Christ. Shall I pray for us in that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that all too often we have a critical spirit. We confess that all too often we judge other people and we point out their sin, even if only in our heart, not because we love them and not because we want to see them helped, but because we like to compare ourselves to other people. Father, help us with our judgmentalism. Help us with our critical spirit. We thank you that even in that we are forgiven in Christ. But we pray that now that we know your mercy and your grace, that we would be people who show that same grace and same mercy to others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.